Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest is Richie Hardcore. He is an educator and public speaker based in New Zealand, and his work explores mental health and wellness, issues around masculinity and domestic and sexual violence, as well as addiction. He also spends a lot of time working with young people about how to make sense of their own sexuality and the omnipresence of sex in the culture, particularly pornography. He's also a former professional fighter, competing in kickboxing and in Muay Thai, the combat sport that comes out of Thailand. I invited Richie onto the podcast because he has a way of talking about all this stuff, the intersection of mental health, pornography, sexual health, things like shifting cultural attitudes about sex work and kink. In a way, I have never heard anyone talk about that stuff. He may be the only guy you're likely to find, uh, at least on this podcast, who is both well-versed in the hardcore music scene, that's where he got his name, competitive martial arts, and also wrote a master's thesis recently on hegemonic masculinities. This is a spectacular conversation, and it gets even more so in the overtime portion that is available for paying Substack subscribers. So go over to megandaum.substack.com and join us there if you want to hear that portion as well. Richie also answers some questions there about his favorite hardcore bands that people posed on Twitter right before we recorded. Not something we cover routinely on this podcast. In the meantime, enjoy this very wide-ranging, very deep conversation with Richie Hardcore. Richie Hardcore, welcome to The Unspeakable. Thank you for having me. It's, a, it's really, really nice to talk with you. You're someone I've been following for a while. You have a lot of interesting things to say about the subject of men and masculinity, which is something I've touched on uh, here with guests like Richard Reeves and others, and also on my other podcasts with Sarah Hader. You have, in addition to talking about men and masculinity, you have a background in professional kickboxing and fighting. Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. I, I think I can safely say that I have never had a professional fighter on this podcast. So depending <laughs> yeah. on how it goes, I might have to re rebrand the whole show. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you'll become like a UFC commentator. You can get on, uh, you can cut into Joe Rogan's market. Exactly. Oh, that's how all podcasters get their start. If you really <laughs> want to succeed in this medium. Yes. Yeah, so I do want to talk about your background and all of that because you, you have a really interesting kind of set of experiences. But for the sake of plunging right in, why don't we start this conversation with this? Why are you speaking about men and masculinity these days? And do you think, as previous guests here have suggested, that we are in a crisis of masculinity? Yeah. Okay, cool. I'll break that into two things. I talk about masculinity now. It's kind of been an evolution of the, my public work because I used to talk about domestic violence prevention and sexual violence prevention and, uh, you know, sexual harassment and, you know, quote unquote rape culture. And as I've evolved in that sort of space, I think it's been impossible not to address a lot of the, you know, cultural ideas around manhood that are a contributing factor to those things. You know, I grew up with family violence and domestic, you know, domestic violence as a child and my father struggled with depression and alcoholism. And there's been this sort of simultaneous unpacking of my own personal experiences with a, an overlap of my professional work and sort of academic study around masculinity. And it's kind of positioned me to be in a really good space to talk about all these things now that they're coming to the forefront of, you know, the discourse. And so I talk about that sort of stuff with, you know, businesses. I do a lot of work speaking with young people in schools and, you know, a bit of punditry in the, in the media about what are, where do we get our ideas about how we're meant to act as men and boys from? You know, mm -hmm. are they, are they all healthy? Are some of them good? You know, which I would argue yes. And are some of them also unhealthy? I would also argue yes. And yeah, it's, it's been personally really fulfilling to kind of be on that journey. And then I really enjoy having those conversations with, with young people as well. 
because I think they're pertinent. I think there is quite like a, I would say there's quite a void for moderate, sensible people to talk about that space. There's, you know, social media polarizes everything. And I feel like a lot of young men in particular feel a bit like, well, who am I kind of supposed to be now? We've done a pretty good job of deconstructing, you know, stereotypical constructs around masculinity, which do have societal value historically, but actually don't really serve us anymore. But we haven't done a good job of role modeling a healthier, more expansive idea of, of masculinity. And so boys are kind of stuck. And I think, you know, I love Richard Reeves' book. And uh, I think he does write a good, you know, he writes a good argument that we need to do a better job of sort of showing a, a middle ground there. You are an athlete. And I know that you actually rose out of your circumstances by being like an extraordinary athlete. So let's talk about where you grew up, what you were all about, and uh, how you sort of transcended your beginnings. Yeah, just quick. I wouldn't say I'm an extraordinary athlete. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not trying <laughs> to be self- By podcasting standards, yeah. you are. Um, yeah, you're yeah. the best athlete. You're probably the most in shape person in the uh, in the podcasting uh, <laughs> guest space. I I um I was a I was a reasonably good athlete in an era where you know sports science what it is today. I appreciate the kindness. I'm not trying to be self facing but like I know elite level athletes, and I'm definitely not one of them. But yeah, sport for me was a real pathway out of, I guess, you know, a family history that was colored by uh, mental illness and alcoholism, you know. So my great-grandfather on my father's side came back from the First World War, obviously with a head full of horrors, and left my great-grandmother to raise my grandfather by herself in an era where they didn't have you know, the domestic purposes benefit and, you know, the social supports that we do today, which are, of course, still nowhere near enough, uh, which obviously impacted how my father grew up. And Mm -hmm. he grew up and, you know, we go back to what we're talking about, masculinity and stuff. My dad grew up with, for whatever reason, his own troubles and alcohol was how he dealt with that. You know, like in the 60s, 70s and 80s, men didn't talk about their mental health or their, you know, we didn't have language for depression or anxiety or, you know, trauma is even overused these days. <laughs> I, I would yeah. argue sometimes, you know, but we didn't have that language. We didn't have that social permission for men to talk about their feelings. We kind of had that, that mandated stoicism and you just sank heaps of alcohol all the time to address your inner suffering, right? Yeah. And you put, you put that mask on for long enough and then everything around you just becomes like a terrible weight. And it's going to come out somehow. And we see that again and again and again, you know. You know, you think about all the men in in prison who have had really abusive childhoods. Often their criminal offending is just a coping mechanism for what is it they're carrying around inside of them. You know what I mean? And so for me, uh, growing up was, you know, it wasn't the worst of the worst, but it definitely wasn't a Brady Bunch. And I was a pretty insecure kid. And my dad actually was in a period of, he's been like on and off the wagon, like my whole life. And he was in a period of sobriety and he took me to a local community hall. And um, there was like a, like a freestyle sort of taekwondo class there. And he's like, I'm not doing a very good job as a dad. Can you help out my boy? I asked him that like a couple of years ago. He said ago. that to the people working yeah, in the gym. Yeah, yeah I asked him. <laughs> I asked him exactly like why I started doing martial arts. And he told me that story and i to me like i give him credit for that because it's a hard thing for a man to do you know like uh oh so you were too young to remember how old were you at this time i, I was 13 years old oh, yeah, okay so yeah i asked him this maybe three or four years ago okay oh so he didn't say that in front of you he, he well took the, he may have but i don't remember you just don't remember did. okay i don't remember wow. he, he told me the story we, we uh-huh. like to, to my old man's credit like he's very um like he's happy to chop it up with me, you know, like I have a curiosity about why I am the way I am. And when I started doing public work around, you know, violence and addiction and stuff, I asked my father's permission, you know, like New Zealand's a small country mm-hmm. and I want him to be cool with it. And he's, you know, he gave me his blessing to tell our story and in the hope that it might help other people, you know, and I, I really respect him for that. Anyway, uh, I just really fell in love with martial arts from 13 years old. It gave me a lot of structure and 
guidance and discipline and encouragement and self-esteem that I hadn't received in my childhood, you know? And that's true across the world. I actually did like a body of research for UNESCO a few years back, looking at different martial arts programs everywhere. And they all like help kids move towards, you know, what the UN consider sustainable development goals, you know, like a a well-structured, well-taught martial arts program, whatever the martial art is, whether it's jujitsu or judo or Muay Thai or boxing, has really beneficial outcomes for um, a lot of, lot of youth. And for me, like, yeah, that, that was my story. And I just really fell in love with it. You know, I, a lot of my friends got into like drugs and crime and, you know, stuff like that from like pretty young. And for me, I was uh, fortunate to, to get into martial arts and be more interested in training and fighting with some rules rather than fighting at parties. Mm. Had you been getting in trouble? Were you like, nah, a- nah, I, no, I hung around. I've always enjoyed the company of, um, how do I say it? Uh, if you look at like uh, the people I spend a lot of time with, they're rock stars or musicians or they're mixed martial artists or they're rappers or they've got histories of addiction. And mm-hmm. I like colorful people, you know what I mean? And that's always, always hung around with. And, you know, we would get in fights and, you know, stuff like that. But for me, it never got to the extent that it, there was a criminality to it. I guess it was more like masculine, youthful behavior sort of manifesting and, and Thai boxing. And, you know, I started doing yeah. Taekwondo as a kid. Then I got into Thai boxing. And the better I got at fighting competitively, the less I was interested in hanging out with people who were doing that sort of stuff. You know what I mean? So when did you become Richie Hardcore? Or is that your, your birth name? The, the <laughs> grandfather that came back from the war? Was he a hardcore also? Nah. So um, so Hardcore is my legal middle name. I still get my family last name. Um, your legal middle name? Your parents? Ser- no, your I, changed parents? My, I changed it okay, myself by okay. default. Yeah. So I think I was like 26 or 27 when I... Thought I, I never expected to be talking to someone like yourself on a podcast, right? And uh, <laughs> see, I, I want to go on Megan's podcast, so I better change my last name to Hardcore. Well, That's yeah, it's totally pretty funny. Like, I, I've done like you know, like national television commentary stuff around like pornography, and I always have to explain that I've never been a porn like a porn star. That's not why my name is Hardcore. <laughs> hardcore, you're not Softcore. <laughs> yeah, you should like, Softcore. Yeah, no, um, Hardcore is a whole uh, subculture of music that came out of the United States, right? Like, uh, yes. The New York, a, yeah, know, you're yeah. familiar with like the New York hardcore scene. And so, I mean, I'm not familiar with it, but I know what it is. I'm, yeah, right. I'm of okay. that generation. Yes. Yeah, what? So, you know, like Sick of It All and CBGBs and all of that course. sort of stuff. That's what I grew up loving alongside my journey into combat sports. And uh, I used to do a radio show down here in New Zealand, and it was called um, Viva La Hardcore. It's like an indie station in Auckland, which is the city where I live in. And I got into like interviewing like American bands with the tour and I really loved it. And alongside that, I was fighting and getting bitter and bitter at that. And I'd walk to the ring with hardcore music as my entrance song. And it just kind of became a thing. Like people just started calling me Richie from the hardcore show or, yo, the way you fight is real hardcore. And it was just kind of like a nickname. And then when you're 26, you're like, yo, I'll just change my name. That'll be cool. And uh, okay. yeah, yeah. It, it kind of, I think now looking back, I mean, people were like, oh, is that, how did you like build your personal brand, dude? And it's like, uh, it was never like a thing. It just was just like an organic, I don't know, searching for identity. And it just seemed like a good idea at the time, you know? Yeah. But um, the whole hardcore culture was a real positive influence on my life as much as, you know, martial arts were, you know, like getting into straight edge and ideas around, you know, politics through the lyrics that we were listening to and. DIY fanzines w- w- was a real force for good, you know, like it kind of showed me a, l- a lot more uh, of the world, you know, like being involved in hardcore music, you know, took me to like New York City and I met a lot of great people and still keep my fingers in that sort of culture to this day, you know? Yeah, I think straight edge is like a really underrated subculture like it hasn't been looked at enough it just, I mean, I don't know a lot about it but it like, it seems like it has kind of the best of everything like it's niche and it's underground and it's cool and it's like you know there's a real edge to it but you're not 
fucked up all the time. So Yo, that, that's it's a, kind of great. I appreciate you swearing because I've been trying my best to not swear. Oh, on you can podcast. swear here. Oh, yeah. Our, our, our motto is nuanced AF. It doesn't stand <laughs> for Air Force. <laughs> okay, cool. I feel way more at home. Okay. Um, yeah, no, totally. Yeah, I think straight edge is like a real countercultural movement, right? Like, I definitely think like Ian Mackay, who, you know, took coined that phrase like wasn't really onto something i think it's actually really rebellious to choose to reject uh intoxication i think intoxication's not a rebellious choice even though that's what media often continues to show us right like i actually choosing to, <laughs> to like wallow in existential misery and figure out like a way to deal with it sober is <laughs> that like is a, the coolest th- that's yes. the coolest shit you gotta right? feel like, your pain you gotta well, feel- it, it is it's kind of but it is punk rock like it you are feeling yeah. your pain yeah you are like that's a hard thing to do i think we live in a culture of avoidance and um and that's to everyone's detriment you know like i, I look at twitter and i look at like some of the smartest people in the world like being absolute maniacs there and like like projecting all their inner suffering onto like some hapless stranger and it's like yo maybe you should just like get offline because you know you can avoid your feelings with the dopamine hits from retweets right as much as smoking weed or crack so i mean i'm definitely saying twitter is probably the lesser of two evils if you compare it to crack but um People are avoiding their their inner worlds and projecting on other people, and it, it's it's really sad, you know. Like it doesn't have to be that way. And to to your point, like I think straight edge and subcultures like that, I do really wish that, you know, imagine if that was marketed the way that we market, you know, alcohol brands. I know it never straight edge. Well, it doesn't have a it doesn't lend itself to to branding because there's nothing to attach to it, right? Like, yeah, you're not selling it's an anything. Absence of things. It's an absence of things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I want to talk about porn because I've heard you talk about the subject and I think it's really fascinating and the way sort of way you frame it is I've never heard anybody really talk about it the way you do. And I, I guess I want to start by asking, I'm not exactly sure how old you are, but it sounds to me like you grew up in the time before there was ubiquitous online pornography yeah i'm um, i'm 42 okay uh so i grew up in the 80s and the time of vhs and you know playboy and penthouse magazines yeah and i first was exposed to pornography when i would have been like 10 years old and a friend's big brother wanted to show us porno movie Right. And I couldn't articulate it or conceptualize it, but I was like, oh, well, this is arousing. That's what pornography is designed to do. And it just sort of became like a, you know, like a, for a lot of young people, like a regular thing to consume without much critical thought. You know, I went to a, I don't know if you have this in the United States a lot, but like all, like single sex schools are really common down here. You have like all boys and all girls schools. And I went to an all boys school that was, you know, pretty working class and we had to wear uniforms and it was pretty macho. And, um, you know, porn was part and parcel of that culture. And then obviously the internet came along in like 1993 and you spend like 47 minutes trying to download one nude image. <laughs> right, you know, right, like, right. You know, like it was very frustrating. But yeah, I think through hardcore, I started reflecting on supply and demand you know like everyone started going vegetarian and vegan through like the hardcore scene and then i read like i think naomi klein's uh, no logo and i started thinking about like sweatshops and like where do my shoes come from and then i started reflecting on like well where does the porn that i consume come from and there used to be this website you know back in the time message boards called one angry girl i don't think it's a thing anymore but it was okay, just a collection. Yeah, it was just a collection of like writings and articles. I guess you'd call it from a radical feminist perspective these days. And I found the work of a professor called Robert Jensen, who used to be at um, I think University of Austin in, in Texas. Anyway, I, and it really made a lot of sense to so me. So, universe. Sorry, we need to clarify this. University of Texas at Austin, because the new heterodox oh, university yeah, yeah, is University of yeah, Austin. Yeah, yeah, that's Barry so, Weiss's thing. Yeah, no, no. Yes, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. University of Texas at Austin is the 
State, yeah, right. State University. Yeah, okay. yeah. I think, I think, I think he was there, and I and Robert Jensen's work really made a lot of sense to me. You know, like he he really spoke to the fact that to consume pornography, you have to turn off your empathy. You know, like mm. you you do really have to think about. You do have to stop thinking about the lived experience of particularly the woman in those films and in those situations, right? And you know, as Jenna Jameson put out her book. And she was like, talked about, you know, the brutal rapes that she experienced as a young woman and how she'd never let her own children be involved in porn, I think, from the top of my head. And, you know, um, there was that 60 Minutes documentary with Belladonna. Did you ever see that? No. Oh, yo, it's dark. And this is, you know, going back 20 years. And it all really started shaping my thinking, you know. And then, you know, I was having... A lot of sex as a young man. Uh, with uh, I was in a long-term relationship, and I think that it really dawned on me that a lot of my sex was kind of like waist down, and there wasn't like a intimacy there. You know what I mean? It was just all physicality, and you could argue that there's obviously like biological drivers behind that, but I definitely think porn shaped a role in what I thought sex was and, and wasn't. You know, and then that's just exploded, obviously, in the time of smartphones and, as you say, ubiquitous porn. And porn's now the de facto, sorry, de facto form of sex education for a lot of people. And I argue that that's really detrimental, you know, because uh, if we're talking about mainstream sexual porn, which is what most people consume, um, it continues to normalize men's power over women. Um, the fact that women enjoy being degraded and sexual aggression is, you know, commonplace. The whole, like, no, it's so weird to me that there's not a cancel culture campaign about stepbrother, stepsister, stepdad. Like, that's normal now. Oh, like, that's a genre, of, dude. Like, it's like oh, the front wow. page. It's like the front page of Pornhub, like the world's most really? popular. No, yeah, dude. It's like I'll check it out. Wow. Or don't, but like intra, <laughs> like intrafamilial themes are like oh. a whole category now. Well, and but we okay, but we can't shame. We can't shame that. Well, that's right? it, and that's where it, that's where it got weird for me, right? Because for a long time, I started talking about my emerging understandings of pornography and you know rape culture, and I think it's you're like you're really having huge cognitive dissonance if you are ignoring porn and talking about rape culture. And then all of a sudden in like 2016, when, when the world really shifted, I think I got like really piled on for commentating, making like some like throwaway comment about Kim Kardashian's like nude selfie. And I, and, and I was like, oh, yo, some people think that porn's a good thing in the feminist mm-hmm. space. And I really had to do a lot of catch up reading because I've been reading like, yeah, like I said, like uh, Andrea um, Dorkin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Andrew Dorkin was always a bit much for me, but like, <laughs> but like Ariel Levy and stuff. You know, did you read that book, Female Chauvinist Pigs? Yes. Yeah, yeah. like books like she, that. I really, Ariel. Yeah, yeah, I, I'd have never met her, but I was a real fan of her work. You know, there's I think Pamela Stevenson wrote a book called Pornified, and just early works like that really made me think about what are we teaching young people, and how is that affecting women in general in a culture where you know, across the world, yeah. women, women still are victims of sexual violence at disproportionately high rates, right? And at the same time, we're meant to ignore that porn, like, normalizes that, you know? Yeah, I, I think the timeline is really important here because, so I'm about 10 years older than you, and mm-hmm. so I missed, so by the time that the raunch culture stuff came around, the stuff that Ariel Levy was responding to in female chauvinist pigs like she was responding to the kind of girls gone wild yeah porn you know sex tape kardashian kind of genre that's started creeping in around the early 2000s so that stuff i was already like i was well out of college and i i wasn't entirely aware that the kind of expectation for what it meant to be a woman had changed. And it was very, I had to do a lot of like catching up because when, when the campus sexual assault kind of conversation came around, I mean, there, that had been around in the nineties, but there was this kind of new wave of this that cropped up around 
2012, 2013 yeah, like kind Brock, of thing. Brock, the Brock Turner case is really complicated and people don't know, um, a lot of people don't know the full details and I've done entire episodes talking about the, the Brock mm. Turner case. So yeah, actually, if you want to, if you want to get really canceled, you <laughs> can, um, be a Brock Turner truther, but, uh, and truther is not really the, the right word, but anyway, so it seems to me that a lot of what happened with an increase of awareness of sexual assault and talking about sexual assault has to do with the way that women began consuming this kind of raunch culture and assuming that that's what it meant to be a sexual being. So like when I was growing up, like you say, it was Playboy magazine, it was VHS tapes, and it was still, it was hard to get your hands on pornography. You had to, you had to make an effort. It wasn't on your phone. It wasn't there all the time. Mm. And it seems like the generations that have only known this kind of instant porn, you know, it's just sort of the, the wallpaper of the culture itself. Their entire notion of what it is to be sexual is rooted in performance. Yeah. I think that's fair. I think we've normalize that to the point that people think that like you know like some people will argue that there is nothing inherently wrong with selling your body to the highest bidder you know like young people think only fans is like a great career pathway mm-hmm. and some people will be really offended if you critique that and it becomes difficult as a man and to talk about this because i'm not trying to police anyone's sexual agency or free will or the or police their sexuality or slut shame them or any of these sorts of things, right? But I get to talk to young people who really regret sending nudes because they've gone all around the high school because that's culturally normalized now. And I get to talk to like older women who talk about mm, it wasn't really rape, but it definitely wasn't sex I really wanted. It was this weird gray area, you know what I mean? Like and I do think we need to be mindful that what we've culturally normalized is not that healthy for any of us a lot of the time. Don't get me wrong, like, I don't care if people want to be, like, hyper-promiscuous and if it's coming from a good space and not just, like, recreating their trauma or whatever it is. I'm not, like, you have to get married and have sex with the lights off. You know, I'm not arguing for that. But at the same time, I'm saying, well... You know, Megan Murphy wrote this article the other day and talked about maybe we need a little bit more shame around sex. Yeah, I saw that. And I, I don't know if shame is the right word for it, but does anything goes have to be the new what's okay? And I, I probably argue not, you know, and I think about how our kids are getting their ideas around sex and sexuality, you know, and they're not often healthy models, you know, uh, yeah, I think I think I think we need to have a much more nuanced conversation. I still think that if you critique porn, people think of it as like you're a conservative or you're a Christian or you're sex negative and all this sort of shit. Mm-hmm. And then I would argue that actually, like, porn doesn't even teach you how to have like good sex. Like as a man, like porn teaches you how to be like really selfish and like phallocentric and like you know the, the porn's all about male pleasure and female submission and it's subject verb object and men are the subjects and women are the objects and that's not changed and people will say oh what about lesbian produced ethical porn and you're like yeah well people <laughs> can you name one great <laughs> lesbian produced ethical porn <laughs> no i mean video that you know was it nominated for an oscar for best <laughs> documentary short i mean come on that, and that's it you know like people say that to me all the time and i'm like yo I speak, I've spoken to tens of thousands of young men and none of them watch that. They, they, <laughs> they watch like the most hardcore shit that they can find for free. No kid's going to like pay for porn. It's like, it's like a ridiculous argument. Well, also people say that women watch porn and enjoy porn also. And, and maybe sometimes tr- that's they do. true, but how common is that? Well, again, the statistics say that it's a lot more common, but I've also had read data and research and, you know, talk to people in the space and a lot of young girls look at porn to know like what to expect or or what to do or what to do. And what porn doesn't show is 
how to use lube if you're going to have anal sex on your first date and you're 14 years old, you know? Or more importantly, how to have a conversation around healthy boundaries or consent or um, mutual pleasure. Like, that's just not role modeled. All these things that make sex really great and a mutuality of respect. That's not role modeled in mainstream heterosexual porn. The hyper progressive take that all porn is harmless all the time kind of, I think, is actually at odds with a culture which is trying to end sexual violence and sexual harassment and it's like how do you not see that you know like here's like a generation of young men growing up looking at girls getting choked and slapped and spit on and called names and getting gang banged and all those sorts of things from like 12 years old and that's then normal and then you suddenly expect them to have healthy understandings about how to approach a woman online like that's just that just doesn't work. We're going to pause here for a short message from me. Are you appreciating this conversation and wishing there were more like it out there? Well, there are lots more right here. I've been doing this show every week for more than two years, and I pretty much do it all by myself. I'm not affiliated with any institution, media company, or secret investment cabal. I do it because I love it. And if you love it or even like it, I hope you'll consider supporting it in any way that makes sense for you. The old way of doing that was through Patreon. Now listeners support the podcast through my Substack page, megandaum.substack.com. You can subscribe for free, or you can become a paid subscriber for as little as $7 a month. That gets you extras related to the unspeakable. Things like early and ad-free access to the show, access to bonus content, and the opportunity to leave comments. If you join at the founding member level, you can join us every month on Zoom, where a bunch of us get together and talk about recent episodes. Best of all, if you become a paying subscriber at any level, you'll never have to hear this message again. So go to megandaum.substack.com. That's M-E-G-H-A-N-D-A-U-M and join our community on the level that's right for you. And honestly, just telling people about the podcast, sharing it with friends, spreading the word means more to me than anything. So thank you for listening to the show, for making the unspeakable worth speaking about. And with that, back to the interview. I'm wondering if the elevation or the, um, the movement to sort of legitimize or destigmatize sex work that goes into porn. Like you can't sort of remove the stigma of sex workers and then also say, well, porn is bad. Like it's almost like it comes with the package. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's decriminalized here. So you can buy sex or sell sex legally. Okay, so what does that mean for the marketplace? Well, I think it means that, well, it depends on your, your I mean, your political viewpoint, I suppose. Like, uh, I mean, I would argue it probably makes sex work safer in some regards. I was talking to a friend who works in the prostitutes collective and she would talk about how like the police would come and just demand sex or else they will arrest you. <laughs> Do you know like in the Oh really? Yeah, in the bad wow. old days. Yeah. And obviously you can't report <laughs> New Zealand okay, sorry, can I just that Americans will be shocked because we think everything in New Zealand is perfect and like very oh, no, progressive and egalitarian and everybody wants to move there because the cops would never do something like that. Oh no, 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 it's not at all. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's I mean, the economic inequality here from the eighties onwards has definitely changed the society, like really yeah. detrimentally, you know, like we've we took like a really radical neoliberal approach around the same time as, you know, Reagan and Thatcher. Yeah. And it's really come home to roost now, you know, like we've got more um, homelessness, more mental illness, more crime. We have more gun violence, all this stuff. You're just yeah. like us. Celebrities, they're just like us. New Zealand, <laughs> you're just like us. <laughs> We're small, just smaller. I mean, okay. Yeah. And like, okay. yeah. There's so less, this, less vegan <laughs> restaurants, you know? Um, okay, so, so, but this is fascinating. So sex prostitution has been decriminalized. So does that yeah. mean that women can have, or anybody can have like a solid career doing this? Yeah, you can. 
Yeah, definitely. And you can operate from your own home, depending on the neighborhood. I think there are like licensing restrictions about where you can open a brothel. I'm not an expert on it, though, so I'm a bit nervous about getting it wrong. But yeah, for all intents and purposes, if you want to enter the sex industry, you, you can without any legal requirements. I mean, any legal barriers, as long as you're over 18. Okay. You know, like you, you got to pay tax and stuff. But now, okay, I wonder, like, is there a world in which this is actually a positive thing? Because, say, young man who has no sexual experience, he's looking at a lot of porn, he hasn't been able to find a partner, he could, like, go to a prostitute. I guess you're allowed to use that word there if you have the, the prostitute collective. I guess so that word is sanctioned. We can, we're allowed to say it. Like, if he goes to a prostitute, can that actually like be a good thing? Because he's going to a real person, having a real experience. Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, some feminists would say yes, and others would say, well, that's just male exploitation of disadvantaged women who've got no other recourse to economic, you know, freedom and success. Is she really disadvantaged, though? Well, I don't know. Like that's where it all becomes like positional, right? Like who's in the position of power there? You know, like. I've talked to strippers who are like, dudes are idiots. They all come here and pay me this much money to see my titties. Like, it's insane, mm-hmm. you know? And someone else would argue, well, well, what's her lived experience? And she's been acculturated into a society that gives women, like, value only for the sexual pleasure that they can provide for men. And, like, it all gets a bit gray. And I don't, I get, I guess in this era, I personally find myself finding it hard to make a, blanket statement about that you do to just do you know what i mean like yeah well but i think that's who, who, who am i to speak for like maybe you're like a college graduate and you want to be a stripper and you want to have an only fans or whatever and you're making mad cash like maybe that is a good thing for you but at the same time it's a real contradiction when we're talking about well objectification of women is a contributing factor to like gendered violence right right and when we reduce women to only their sexual worth in the marketplace what does it say about how we perceive them as full human beings right right i get frustrated when some voices will say this is empowering and then you talk to a young man about what they think of women in porn and it's not the first word that springs from the mouth isn't empowering you, do you know what i mean yeah, but yeah. if the if the woman, you know, it's the old Sex in the City line. I I chose my choice, right? Yeah, yeah, and so that's if, it. And, yeah, and it and it becomes yeah, it becomes like a like I said, like it becomes like wh- wh- how do you look at this? You know, where are you looking at it from? Like for me, I'm always trying to figure out, or well, how do we help boys and men have values and beliefs and behaviors that don't lead to discrimination, harassment, and violence towards women and girls, right? Like, on a personal level, I've seen that play out. Like, I've had female friends who've been raped or horrifically abused by their partners to the point that one of them killed themselves. And I've worked in gender violence advocacy for a long time and heard the worst possible shit that can ever happen to a human being, really. And um, I think there is an acculturation that men some men or all of us kind of swim through it often does belittle and other and diminish the worth of females right and then if you extrapolate that out like think about like sex selected abortion and shit like that and in certain countries you know right yeah across the world we still treat women as less than men and then yeah i'm trying to figure out how do we teach boys that there's an equality of worth that we all need to hold, right? And then when I think about porn and I think about sex work, I'm struggling to reconcile that. But then maybe that's my own biases and my own political lens and I'm not seeing something, you know? It's really hard because the the feminists that are speaking up about porn are sort of written off as kind of the wrong kinds of feminists or scolds or somehow just, it's, it's, there's no, there's no good answer because you don't want to sit here and say like, well, we should get rid of all porn. No. I mean, it's really like we should get rid, we we should make it less easy to access, but that's never going to happen because it's online. Well, it could, it is online, but like, 
you could at least try and regulate it to some degree, right? Like, mm. you know, Nicholas Kristof wrote that article, The Children of Pornhub. Did you catch that a couple years back? Oh, I think I remember that, yeah. And then, like, Visa and MasterCard, like, denied access to Pornhub until they removed. Like, it really hit Pornhub where they care. Well, it hit right. where they right. care about, which is their bottom line. And they went and got rid of, like, hundreds of thousands if not millions of videos of actual rapes on their website yeah right like because when we consume porn it's not like there's like a fair trade organic label on any of it and you know the circumstances under which it was <laughs> you know right. unless you go to like a niche ethical you know that right. porn site you don't know what you're consuming you don't know if like the person was wasted or having a mental health crisis or right. any of these sorts of right. things when you're consuming it right and so i think people tell themselves Everyone who does porn loves being fucked by like seven dudes at once mm-hmm. and then has some bukkake, right? Like they love that. That's their favorite thing to do because no one wants to think about that, right? Like to, yeah. to no one likes to get in the way of their own pleasure. So I think if you're having honest conversations, you could say, yes, some people really enjoy that. But is it everyone? And we never know when we're looking at mainstream porn as it stands. So maybe there could be market intervention by state actors like i think that is a good idea to explore i think you should put age restrictions on accessibility porn sites from like an internet service provider level i think anyone who's got kids should really give a shit about this sort of thing because otherwise your kids male or female are gonna be exposed to porn more or less the data will tell you at some stage in their life i mean and then yeah, sorry, I'm going That on. all sounds good, yeah. but it just seems like the genie's out of the bottle. It would be, well, I, can, yeah. I, mean, I can imagine people listening to this and saying, well, that would be great, but that is just yeah, like, yeah, on yeah, a, yeah. like technological yeah. level that is just never going to happen. Like everybody yeah. will find a way to get to it. And then to the backstop to that is like, okay, well, why don't we have mandated porn literacy classes? Not to say like, not to have people sit down and watch porn like in a classroom. That's not a good idea. But to talk about, you know, power dynamics and gender roles and what is consent and what does good sex look and sound like and talk through all of these things in age-appropriate ways in um, non-squeamish language because it's a harm reduction approach, right? Like, it's not if kids are going to look at porn, it's when kids are going to be exposed to porn. So let's help them have some degree of, like, educational inoculation against narratives which are often really damaging to consume and internalize. I don't think that's impossible. I think everyone can educate about this. You just have to have a political willingness. That's a great idea. Although that, yeah, porn literacy, although that would never work in the U.S. because it would be immediately weaponized. That reminds me of the case of Jocelyn Elders, Back in 93, I think, under under Bill Clinton, she was the first black surgeon general here in the U.S. And it was during the AIDS crisis. And she was asked at one point about harm reduction and, you know, how to encourage kids to use condoms. And I think somebody asked her if teaching children about masturbation might reduce uh, unsafe sex. And she said something like, Yes, that is something that that should be taught. And of course, like Rush Limbaugh and mm-hmm. the, his ilk just ran away with it. The Surgeon General thinks kids should be taught how to masturbate. And that was the end of her. She was uh, fired. Well, she was, she was like Bill a, Clinton, of all people. Like a precursor to the cancer culture. <laughs> she, she was mm-hmm. like ahead of her time. Yeah, well, right. <laughs> so exactly. So to teach porn literacy... In the U.S., I can imagine how that would fly. But I think you're really on to something. I mean, I think kids need to be taught media literacy. I mean, I think that too. Culturally illiterate in a million ways. Yeah, I um, I just finished my master's thesis, and my basic, you know, I spent two years writing this, you know, a whole bunch of word salad, and then my basic thing was like, yeah, let's just teach media literacy. You know, like you're not going to get rid of, you know, I was talking about hip hop music and masculinity and a lot of the tropes that come through and how we build our ideas around manhood Mm -hmm. um, through media culture, if you just teach media literacy, at least it's like a counterweight to a steady tide of bad ideas, whether that's about like violence or porn or, you know, conspicuous materialism or substance use, you know, like we glorify all these things every day and then we wonder why we have the problems that we do. Oh, I know. 
it's not just media, obviously. There are like lived histories of trauma and like economic marginalization. And, you know, there are real structural barriers for some more than others. And we need to address those. But at the same time, like when you're looking at like hardcore porn every day and there's a liquor shop on your corner and you're listening to music that glorifies violence every day, probably going to do something. I don't think that's controversial to say. And yet we seem so hamstrung with finding solutions. While I have you here, I want to ask you about choking. What is up with that? It's all the rage. I'm of the generation that that was not on our radar, was not on the menu at all. That originated in porn. Can you tell me like what that's about? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, um, yeah, again, that's like, uh, a form of sexual aggression that's been normalized through pornography. And then young people are recreating that. Not just young people. This is a really good TED talk. I forgot who did it by, uh, a woman. She's in her forties and fifties and she talks about how she likes to date young men and that just goes straight to like choking her. Right. Um, but yeah, <sighs> young people, young people get this blueprint of what sex is and isn't. And choking is part of that narrative. Do you know what I mean? Like if you think about porn, it's often quite formulaic and you run through a series of sex acts and then choking is, is part of that part, part and parcel. But of it's that. just like not, it's like one of these things is not like the other. I, it, well, does it come the, from erotic asphyxiation? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Some, people, some people would argue that it comes from erotic asphyxiation and that there is like an arousal in that. But, and I think there is, I mean, and there is like biology and, Remember, um, like the singer of NXS used to do like auto, auto erotic asphyxiation, but he ended up killing himself. Michael Hutchinson. Oh, I know another. I know a, a Kevin Gilbert, who was a musician you probably have not heard of. No, I don't he know. He was a really is. talented guy who, yeah, was he, he died. Not, he died he wasn't of in auto. A band. No, he's the opposite. He was like <laughs> yeah. a singer songwriter. Right? Yeah. So even the mellow people. Yeah, no, I remember he uh, died of uh, auto erotic asphyxiation, probably in the in the nineties. Yeah. But I, but I also think that like we've, I think a lot of people aren't doing it because they intentionally are looking for like a heightened, pleasurable sexual experience. No, I think they're doing it because they've we've normalized that through porn and young. If I'm thinking about it stereotypically, men choke women in porn. That's what you do. So kids recreate that, and that tra- carries on into adulthood. It's so or, weird. Or, yeah, or, you know, but it's the same with lots of things like spitting on people, slapping people, calling them bitches and whores and like pulling their hair. Like we've really, really normalized rough sex to the point that it's become a defense in courtrooms. You know, oh, this homicide actually was just rough sex gone wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, you know, that's a common trope these days. God, and it just makes total sense that then you would just have these huge waves of women really having negative sexual experiences and framing their sexual lives as something that they really feel like victims. I mean, that makes that makes sense. And I, I've said this before, that I think people of my generation overlook that element because it just was not part of our experience. Yeah, and I, I think, I'm, you know, I'm 10 years younger than you, more or less, and I think that was when people started going, mm. I wasn't forced into do it, but I just did it because that's what my boyfriend wanted, even mm-hmm. if I didn't really like it, right? And so how do you teach all people that sex has got to be uncoerced, mutually pleasurable, mutually agreed upon, and just like a fun, like, conversation? Like, I'm not saying there's anything. Maybe you are interested in auto-erotic asphyxiation that's doing it to yourself, or maybe you are interested in, like, you know, uh, bondage or whatever, all good, but you have to do it with a whole range of like safeguards and check and everyone has to agree to it. And that's what it's not important point. It's just often men performing aggressive acts towards female performers and female performers are paid to pretend to like it or not like it, you know? Yeah. And, um, we've kind of linked that with sexual arousal and that's a really damaging. What do you think about the rise of kink? The visibility of kink, kink shaming is uh, something that should not be done. And so we end up having like a lot of stuff in the ether that really has to do with very fringe kind of sexual proclivities or preferences. Yeah. And when, when you say like kink shaming, it just like 
I get like a knee jerk sort of eye roll, you know, because yeah, that's why I said it. They're like, they're, yeah, you, we nailed that. <laughs> like, that sort of person who says stuff like that generally like irritates the shit out of me on Twitter, you know. Like I'm like, what world do you live in? Right? It's not you live in a niche world. Like I don't think, I don't think most reasonable people care what people do behind there in the privacy of their own home, right? If it's not hurting anyone else, right? Like I genuinely. I mean, yeah, sure, there are really conservative, bigoted people who are horrible, like, you know, Westboro Baptist Church is a thing, yeah. right? And some people are really conservative and stuff, and they do try and police other people's sexual freedoms, and yeah. that's wrong. They had their moment, though. It's very 80s. Yeah, that's right. Really and 80s. Westboro Baptist Church was like a whole other thing. I mean, again, like back in the Reagan era, the Christian fundamentalists were the purity police. Yeah, they were. And Nancy I think that's Reagan. The, yeah. yeah, and the left, I mean, I think a lot of young people, they have no idea about that. They think that the political right was never anything but just sort of like chaotic MAGA hedonist and it's like wow no quite no. quite the opposite yeah yeah and it has actually been like an interesting shift in polarity there about who dictates what like who's censorious now and who's not right exactly it's yeah. totally flipped it's flipped like it's definitely like critical social justice advocates are the censorious ones now to the extreme but yeah do i what do i think about king i don't you know if you want to like chain yourself up with a ball gag i think i, I don't mind but do I think that needs to be paraded in front of children? Probably not. Yeah. Like, I think there's a difference between, um, you know, in, in New Zealand, like I, you know, I was, I was a public advocate for gay marriage, right? Like there was a TV campaign in like 2013 and I put my hand up when I was invited to be in it. And I was like, yeah, for sure. Like everyone should have those sort of basic human rights, but I don't know if we need to have like, people in dog masks like crawling down the street i know at the gay pride parade yeah like yeah like i don't know if that's a gay that's not a necessarily even a gay thing like that's a sexual proclivity outside of your sexuality do you know what i mean oh yeah no i i yeah. talk about this all the time and josh zepps um your australian neighbor has talked about this really eloquently he's gay and he talks about being feeling very alienated from yeah a lot of sort my- of new gay movement yeah a lot of my a lot of my older gay friends we have like this private dm sort of group going on you know what i mean and like yeah they're like dude like (laughs) we get so misrepresented by everyone thinks libs of tiktok is the gay community right and 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 that's not true i think most gay people are just like regular folks who just happen to like having sex with people of the same sex and they're not pronouncing these extreme things on the internet and yet the algorithm feeds you that every day and that's really it's really detrimental to, for our um coexistence yeah and like i feel like there's probably going to be like a really nasty pushback against i think there's going to be a rise in homophobia yeah you know i really worry about that i think we've done such a good job of addressing the homophobia which has plagued our society and shouldn't be part of uh, culture, but I, I worry that the extremities on the other end of it are gonna maybe reignite some of those ultra conservative talking points. And I don't yeah. know if I'm what I'm saying is wrong or I'm going to get in trouble for saying that. But no, no, I, 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 I do worry about fear. I do worry about that. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, and people uh, have made it all this time without mentioning the the new gender movement, but I think that that's <laughs> like a a great um, a, a real danger there. Like it's. Uh, the LGBT, the LG, whatever. Yes, that umbrella is ne- the sort of queer umbrella is dominating the discussion. And, yeah, uh, and, they, you know, and and there's a lot of like uh, lesbian, gay, bi um, voices who want that uncoupled now, right? Like, I don't know if you've yeah, followed yeah. that. And I follow it very closely, yes. Yeah, and even people within the transgender community, you know, you've got like uh, Blair White and... Bucket Angel. Angel. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Marcus Deb. Do you know Marcus? Oh, I know you had him on, uh, yeah, on your yeah. podcast. Yep. Yeah, and Cor- yeah, yeah. Corinna Cohn, who's been... Yeah. Oh, yeah. But again, this is like very hard to talk about. Oh, yeah. And it's also like, how do you talk about it without just sounding like a scold? Like, I tend to be a very... Like, I'm kind of a prude. I'm a proud prude. <laughs> so, and I, you know, I don't like it. Like, I, I just... I think everybody should sort of comport themselves properly and just yeah, you know, have some I'm dignity. Not, so <laughs> I'm not the best to like... <laughs> Talk well, about I'm, this. I'm I'm not like that. Like I've you know I've had a pretty colorful life, and I'm mm-hmm. covered in tattoos, and like a lot of my friends are like rappers and drug addicts, and they're you know like all sorts of crazy stuff. And I've been like painfully earnest and open about personal things in my small public life in a small country. And I think we should be able to talk about these things in an objective, rational, reason way. But even just talking to you now, I feel like this dread that I'm going to get like piled on Twitter and l- lose oh. my, you do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I don't want you to edit it or anything, <laughs> but because like it's become such a landmine to have a reasonable discussion, particularly if you don't believe in, if you believe in like standpoint theory, like you and me are, you know. Nobody listens, nobody listening to this podcast <laughs> believes in standpoint theory. Yeah. But you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, you're not, you yeah. have no standing to say this. Yeah, totally. But I, I'm like, well, I kind of do because I've got children and they go to school and this is in mm-hmm. the curriculum now when we talk about uh, gender and gender identity. Like, that's a theory. You know, there, we still haven't proven that there's a biological basis to being transgender. Yeah. And, and yet we teach it like it is. And, you is know. Is that as I, big a deal in New Zealand as it is oh, here? Yeah, we've, I think we're about to go through with like self-ID laws down here and mm-hmm. maybe later this year because New Zealand's small it's actually been real rough watching women in particular who oppose self-ID and those sorts of uh, legislative moves, watching them get smashed to pieces and become yeah. ostracized on, in polite society. Although I would have to say that it is slowly starting to change. Like some mainstream publications have allowed like academics to talk about the possibility of social contagion, like uh, Lisa Lipman mm-hmm. talks about from Brown University, you know? Yeah. And, you know, because we, you know, we, we followed the same sort of cultural arc that the United States has. You know, you see more and more kids <laughs> with... You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Cheers, guys. Like, I'll take your hardcore scene, but could you leave some of the other stuff? <laughs> <laughs> like, um, but, you know, like, you know, in certain parts of town, you know, everyone's got, like, this septum pissed and, like, their pronouns in their bio, like that's mandated in businesses and different institutions expect that now. And it's sort of just become, yeah, become like normal. And I'm like, isn't that again? Like, I don't care like how you personally identify, but do we need to like, literally if you're, if you, if you're transgender or you're non-binary and I saw you getting hassled in the street, I'd physically put myself in harm's way to protect you. I swear to God, you know? Yeah. Uh, I do that for anyone, right? I hate bullies and I hate like belittling people for their differences. And I hate hatred and bigotry. But at the same time, we should be a little bit concerned that in the UK, there's like a 5,000% increase in yeah. young women in particular. Yeah. Or 4, Slow your roll there. Yeah. So it's 4,400, 4,400%. Yeah. 4, and, and, and the same in the United States, like a double, a doubling of, you know, yeah, you well, they the ex- can't even keep track. I mean, like the explosion is, of gender yeah, clinics, yeah, you know, yeah. and then you've got like voices like Chloe Cole. Like, did you listen to her testimony? The transitioner. Yeah. Yeah. Now we've covered this a, a lot on this show and I kind of try to like, I, I try to keep a rubber band around my wrist and snap it every time yeah, I, start I know. To talk, about, like, talk about gender. It's, but- hard, it's, it's hard to not talk about it, though, because you asked me about masculinity at the outset of our conversation. And people were really confused about gender now. And it's become such a hot, hot, hot button topic. Well, yes, I do think it's very germane because getting back to the the porn thing, I often wonder if part of the reason that like these girls, they they don't identify as women or they don't want to be women. Mm. It's because the version of womanhood that they're seeing is so hypersexualized. It wasn't that way for those of us who grew up in the 70s and the 80s. The, the lane was a lot wider. And I think that uh, not so much for men. I mean, I think that a feminine boy had a lot harder time than a, yeah. than a masculine girl. 
But, you know, I'm curious, too, about people who now identify as asexual, for instance, or demisexual. Do you know what that means? Uh, no, I don't know what demisexual That you're attracted means. to Demi Lovato and Demi Moore. That you're <laughs> attracted to people named Demi. No, it means um, that... Demi, Demi Moore is a jack of... Yeah, yeah. So it means that you are only sexually attracted to people who you feel an emotional connection to. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, that's a nice ideal, but like we live in bodies and some of us like the way some people look and some like the way other people look and that's normal too. But why is that an identity? So like, well, well, that's well, it. I yeah, just call yeah. these like, uh, pr- you know, traits or preferences. Like if you yeah. have a type, yeah, suddenly I know, that I know. becomes an identity category. Yo, I know. I was thinking about this. Like Kirk Cobain wore a dress. You, do you know what I mean? Like Boy George, you know, like yeah. dress gen- in a gender non-conforming way. You know, like oh, David Bowie. Yeah, none of these things are particularly new. Even if you look at like glam metal in the eighties, like you look at like Wasp and Motley Crue and Skid Row, those guys were quote unquote like gender non-conforming in their presentation. They had long hair and they wore makeup, and and yet their lyrics and a lot of their posturing was hyper masculine in other ways, right? Right. So I don't know. Was Vince Neil from Motley Crue (laughs) non-binary? Like, do you know what I mean? Well, maybe he would be trans now. I've, I've heard people argue that. Like if David Bowie and Patti Smith were coming of age now, that they would be trans. I have had young people tell me that, insist that, insist upon that. Really? Yeah, and it's uh, it's absurd. Well, I, th- I mean, I Patti Smith big- is around. Let's ask her. I, I happen to have Get Patti Smith right here. You're, <laughs> you know, it's like I. Uh, but I, I, guess, I just yeah yeah I, I think yeah. I think we've overly complicated it in some regards. You know, like a lot of like really like poorly understood ideas have spilled out of academia through social media into society and we've kind of worked really hard to deconstruct the heteronormative cisgendered white patriarchy but none of us really know what that fuck is happening anymore do do you know what i mean uh yes i do i i I think some of these things are well-intentioned but i also think young people now who live on TikTok are really going to struggle in years to come. Um, and it, it makes me sad on their account. Like, I'm fine, you know? But I think about my children. I don't know if you have children. I think about other people's children. I think about the young people I work with. And, I mean, how many more Chloe Coles are there going to be on the extreme end of it, you know? Yeah. Or you look at, you know, you, uh, Jonathan Haidt's data on, like, the extreme rise in, like, yeah. anxiety and depression and self-harm, particularly in young women. Or, you know, um, Gene Twenge, or you read Johan Hari's work, and everyone's miserable, you know? And I don't see how a high-profile company mandating that you put your pronouns in your uh, email signature is actually making things better. Does that make sense? Uh, Yes. (laughs) Let's leave it there. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Um, All right. I'm going to keep you uh, a little bit for some bonus content. But before we go to that, we'll wrap up this this portion of the conversation. I guess I just, my last question is, what do you hope to do? Do you see yourself as somebody who primarily is interested in talking to young people and trying to right this ship? I love the idea of porn literacy, or I love the idea of a just sort of like large scale movement for cultural literacy and porn literacy would be a part of it. Like, do you see that sort of thing as your life's mission? Yeah. Like I would, I mean, if I had any money, (laughs) I would actually really like to create a really awesome online resource center where all these things are talked about in a relatable, fun, and yet research-based way that is as ideologically neutral. I really like what Richard Reeves said where he's like a conscientious objector in the culture war. You know, like I feel like we've politicized everything to the detriment of everyone, and that really makes me sad. But we should be able to talk about sex and porn and masculinity and gender roles and what a healthy relationship is in really lighthearted and yet in an important way, you know, and make that accessible to to people, you know, you could roll that out through institutions in the English-speaking world, at least, at least pretty easily, right? And I'm, and there are people doing that. I would like to do that, and I'm working towards that. I've been asked to write a book, like about, you know, um, 
masculinity Uh-oh. for young men. I don't recommend yeah. that. <laughs> don't you? Ha- having yeah. written a number of them. If yeah, you want right. To, uh, I know, I know. My thesis, w- yeah, my thesis was hard enough. But I, I don't know, like, it's also like my fragile ego would quite like the idea of like, yeah, I'm an author, <laughs> you know, call me. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, um, yeah. But it's something to fill the time with before I die, you know, like, so, <laughs> <laughs> so okay, well. I might just work towards that. And, but what I really like doing is, to be honest, I'd really like a physical center that has really nice facility to teach Muay Thai, kickboxing, boxing, some weightlifting with a lecture theater in the back where we can talk about these things too for for anyone who wants to be part of that. You know, I work with people who have obviously come from, you know, correction facilities. I work with people from addiction treatment. I talk with people from like nice backgrounds too. And we all have different like struggles and I'd love to create a space that allows people to show up and work on those in like a holistic sort of sense. And I know holistic sounds corny and you think of like yoga and like, no, I know what you mean. It's uh, many. Yeah, it's many, many things. P- many legs of the stool. Yeah. yeah no, I think yeah. that sounds awesome. I'd like to do that. And then like, yeah, I do enjoy touring and speaking and it's fun. You know, like my friend's huge heavy metal band is taking me to Australia to talk real quick about getting men involved in violence prevention real soon. You know, that, that sort of thing is fun and exciting and nerve wracking. <laughs> I just really want to like contribute positively to the world that I live in and, you know, like hope that I'd plant a few seeds and, and maybe they, they grow into something cool, you know, as well as like being a really good father to my sons, you know. Well, that all sounds amazing. You know, one of the best things about talking to you is that when you say better and better, like because of your Kiwi accent, <laughs> it sounds to us like you're saying bitter and bitter. <laughs> so no, it's this great effect because I'm like, oh, he's talking about something being bitter. And then they realize a second later, oh no, it's better. <laughs> so you turn the bitter into a better. Have you had any um, people from Aotearoa New Zealand on your podcast before? Uh, I've had at least one Australian. I don't think oh, I've yeah, had yeah. A, a, a Kiwi. I love New Zealand. I spent a, a whole month there. Um, oh, sick. Many, was, many, many yeah, years cool. ago. It's nice. Yeah. Like, I love it's America. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love visiting America, you know. But um, New Zealand's not without its charms. Yeah. Not at all. Not at all. All right. Well, Richie, we're going to keep you uh, for some extra content. So if you guys want to become paying subscribers, you can hear us talk about hardcore bands <laughs> as we do in every bonus episode, which you would know if you were a paying subscriber. So, uh, uh, and I'm also going to talk to you about some ex- some deep existential questions as well. So it's not just going to be about hardcore. So Love that. something Love for that. everyone. Okay. All right. Well, Richie, uh, thanks so much for being on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much for being interested in talking with me. That was my interview with Richie Hardcore. He is an educator and public speaker based in Auckland, New Zealand. Again, there's a lot more of this conversation on the Substack page for paying subscribers you can go to megandaum.substack.com to access that. Lots of good stuff there, including uh, stuff that I am writing. Uh, if you join at the founding member level, you get to come to monthly Zoom hangouts for special founding members where I always show up and you can ask me anything you want within reason. And I am doing more of this bonus content this year. There's going to be a whole lot more of it. So it's a great time to join. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.